So, if you were not here last week, welcome. And I would strongly encourage you to listen to the podcast, which is the recording of last week's class, because there's a lot of background that we covered last time about the dawn of the modern era and how that set the stage uh, for all manner of, content- of modern Jewish identities. Um, you just either you go to, um, if you have like the app, uh, the, the uh, what you call it, podcast app on your phone, you go there and you type my name in. Or you go to a, a site called soundcloud.com and you type my name in. Or you go to my Facebook page and you'll find it there. Okay? So those are all options. Great. Well, if you don't have to be on Facebook. My Facebook page is public. So if you go to Facebook and then you type Rabbi Jonathan Kligler in or Jonathan Kligler, it'll go to my Facebook page. It's another way to access this. I was trying all these. It's incredibly easy. Um, so it's not hard. Okay. Alrighty. So um, we're going to digress uh, from our timeline for the first part of this class with no. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll digress with no um, for some period of time uh, because uh, his contemporary current events overtook our history class on Tuesday with Israeli elections, True. right? Yeah. And uh, um, I think by the end of this series, we'll have connected dots uh, in ways that will be very helpful for all of us to understand the trends uh, that have led to this outcome in the most recent Israeli election, where I, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu won, uh, will will be able to continue as prime minister, putting together the most right-wing government co- governing coalition that Israel has ever seen. Um, and let's see, what do I want to say about it? Um, it's part of much larger trends going on in the world today that are essentially anti-liberal, I'm using liberal with a small l, liberal being the idea that grew out of modernity, out of the French Revolution, out of the, the idea of liberal is liberty, egalite, fraternite, that's where the liberal comes from with a small l, that, um, uh, that, that uh, nation states would uh, also secure the rights of all the individuals uh, who are part of that entity, um, and uh, that uh, it also cuts against, as we'll discuss, differing visions of Zionism that emerged as the Zionist movement. When the Zionist movement was invented and created in 1896, as you might imagine, there were immediately different factions. Right? 
and the differing factions of the Zionist movement are related to the differing factions of every nationalist movement. Is the nation state an end in itself? That ultimately, when you fought, or is it there to accomplish some moral or uh, some idea of a good society? Do you follow what I'm saying, everybody? Uh, so when you go to the extreme of statism, where the nation state is a good in and of itself, and has no connection to the moral character of that state. That's fascism, right? That's where you go all the way extreme to the, the worship of the state as an end in itself. On the other end, um, the is democratic socialism, which was the way in Europe, and we'll talk about this today, that socialism, the ideas of socialism got integrated into uh, nationalism, that a nation state's purpose is to uh, make possible a vision of a good society for all its citizens. Um, and that battle over a nation, of what a nation stands for, that swing back and forth, that internal paradox almost, uh, that contradiction is true of every national history, and we watch the pendulum swing back and forth. In my case, as a liberal Zionist, raised, you know, those are my roots, and uh, that's where I still dwell. Um, that comes not only from the modern liberal ideas, but from the ideas of Judaism as representing a moral vision for how a society would run, right? How you treat the, your neighbor, how you treat the stranger, you know, uh, and all the critiques that you read in the Bible of corrupt leadership. Uh, so therefore, for me, a Jewish state had to be one that embraced the values of Judaism. And that uh, uh, to watch that drain away from the leadership of Israel is very um, tragic to me. Uh, that doesn't mean there aren't many, many people who, remember, this was a razor-thin election. Think about our election in 2016. Um, uh, this is not the entirety of Israeli society. Nonetheless, there are enough voters in Israel who appreciate everything that Benjamin Netanyahu has done. He's been a very capable leader especially if you measure success by prosperity and security for enough of the citizens who will then vote for you again, right? And he's done it masterfully. The guy is a political master. He is also, at best, an amoral, if not an immoral, political master. Remind you of anybody. <laughs> Right? Uh, that's what's going on in the world, is that. But, but there were reasons people voted for him. Not just because those people are bad people, but we can't make that assumption. They're happy that uh, Israel has more relationships with more Arab countries than ever before, that Israel's leader is meeting and hobnobbing with the Putins and the Trumps of the world. Uh, they're happy about that. They're happy that Israel is one of the most powerful economies per capita in the world. It's like, 
And Netanyahu has overseen that. So, you know, Shmuel Rosner was writing in the New York Times yesterday explaining there's reasons why people voted. There's also reasons why people voted against him. He's corrupt. He's divisive. He doesn't keep his word. Uh, he is leading the state in the direction of an openly racist regime. Those are good reasons not to vote for him. <laughs> um, the stakes are high. The stakes are very high. And it appears that he managed once again to put together a ruling coalition. Um, he has made his bed with people much further to the right than he personally is, and more extreme. The speculation is that he's doing so both strategically. The guy is, the guy's, like I said, he's a, he's a political master. And he is under indictment, or about to be under indictment, for corruption charges. This is not um, established yet, but he is probably cutting deals right now with the par smaller parties that are joined his coalition that in exchange for protecting him and giving him a lot of cover, uh, he will enact as much of their agenda as he feels he can enact. Does that make sense, everybody? So his personal ass is on the line and he's willing to do anything to remain in power. Uh, let's see what happens next. But I, I am, uh, uh, I, as, as a uh, passionate supporter of Israel, I am even further thrust into the wilderness. Uh, by these uh, election outcomes. I've had a, now two days to calm down. <laughs> and what I'm going to personally be doing is continuing to support the incredible number of NGOs, that's uh, uh, non-governmental organizations in Israel, that work for human rights, women's rights, Palestinian rights, civil discourse, democracy education, all the things that I, all the things that I want to see strengthened in Israeli society, and I don't know what else I can do other than keep the faith in that way, and also remind myself that um, this was basically a free and fair election. Uh, Netanyahu gets away with anything he thinks he can get away with. Since Donald Trump is uh, leading the way in what you can get away with, then, you know, Bibi and many others take their cues and say, hmm, okay, it's not just on a national level. I was just talking to someone yesterday who um, is a, a it's, it's, I won't give you all the details. Suffice to say that when um, Trump claimed that Democrats were um, uh, anti-Semitic recently and is trying to make anti-Semitism into a Republican versus Democratic issue. Uh, that there are local, in local politics here, there are Democrats who, who are now being accused of being anti-Semitic by Republicans in their little town boards, right? Because not everybody, I'm only talking about one incident, so I just don't want to give any details. 
um, because it's, it wasn't shared with me in that way. Just to suffice to say that this is not just on a national level. We're witnessing if, if America, to whatever flawed degree, once stood as a guardian of um, the rule of law and uh, in the world, and I believe me, I know how um, flawed a statement that is. Nonetheless, um, a talk of annexation of the Palestinian territories would never even gotten broadcast because the United States would have come down hard, right? Now, it's uh, all, all fair game. And uh, it's pretty frightening. Um, so in addition to continuing to support all the forces in Israeli society that I still feel are fighting that good fight, that good fight for me is that I want the Jewish state to be a state that does not just exist for, the, for its safety, for the security and prosperity of its citizens, but also, as many Zionists have felt since the foundation, as the represent, the, 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 a political manifestation of the values of Judaism as laid out in, right? Hold on one second, Ellen. One might say, and I'm that one, right? All these are in my head that no state is ever going to be able to do that. That we might as well give up and understand that the exercise of power that is statecraft is just that, and we shouldn't expect or count on more. But that's not Jewish teaching. I'm a Jew. That's not Jewish teaching. And just, you know, um, despite it all, I'm, I'm going to maintain a vision that in the down and dirty, incredibly corruptible, greedy human heart, there is also this capacity for empathy, justice, transcendence. That's what Judaism teaches. I'm not giving it up. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> and so I'll continue to support those elements in Israeli society that share that vision. Um, so that's what I wanted to, wanted to say in the wake of this election. Ellen. Um, how do you support those NGOs and how might we? Oh, look up the New Israel Fund. The New Israel Fund. Um, also, because uh, I just described their mission. I give them a big donation every year. Also, look up a site called Olmep, A-L-L-M-E-P, Alliance for Middle East Peace. There you will find a clearinghouse of well over 100 Israeli-Palestinian organizations that are working on coexistence projects. Okay? Those are just two examples. There are so many more. Can you repeat the first one? New Israel Fund. Look it up. They deserve support because they are a really, from my perspective, a, a centrist um, effort uh, over the last 30 years, you'll see their mission statement to promote democracy and human rights in Israel, including Arabs' rights, Arab uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel's rights, women's rights, uh, people of color, but also to do a lot of democracy education in Israel. They're a great organization. And in, in um, uh, Netanyahu's uh, um, strategy, the way he won this election was by claiming that anyone who didn't support him was an Arab-loving leftist. 
and wanted Israel to be destroyed. It was right out of the autocrat's playbook. Okay, that's what he did, and he scared up, literally, enough votes to continue in power. Uh, I mean, if you were following, the opposing party was utterly centrist, even center-right, but, uh, pro- but um, was also proclaiming the need for common decency, public discourse, and um, a uh, unified political body that talked to each other. Right? Very, very basic Parva stuff for us. Right? Uh, and three of the four leaders of this party, and this is the part that's shocking to me, uh, are former chiefs of the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces. In other words, these are the folks who have been keeping Israel secure for the last, in their 10 years, last 12 or 15 years. And Shaul Mofaz also came out in support of them, who was a former, uh, retired now. And nonetheless, Bibi shamelessly um, portrayed them as uh, leftists who, who don't care about the state, right? <sighs> anyway, it was ugly, just like we've got going on here. Yeah. I have two comments. One, because of what you just said, I just read that uh, the Hamas leaders before the election met and decided that they would go with Netanyahu. That was they preferred because they felt that he would always do everything to keep violence down. He didn't want violence to happen. So he wouldn't answer. And that's the testing of those rockets was to see what he would do. And he did nothing. And they felt that these other people that you're talking about, the other party, the blue and white party, yes. that they would be more aggressive and more militaristic and more... So they, 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 they wanted Netanyahu. Anyway, I just read that. Today. That's fascinating. That's very weird. Um, well, no, it's not weird. And let me comment about that. When the Oslo Accords were unraveling after uh, Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated by an Israeli rightist, um, that is also when Hamas started an incredible campaign of uh, suicide bombing within Israel, uh, school buses, pizzerias, nightclubs, Passover seders at hotels, and a thousand, over a thousand Israelis were murdered by suicide bombers. This is in the Second Intifada. Uh, and uh, this is before the Second Intifada. This is in the late 90s. As a result, um, the Oslo Accords fell apart. And Netanyahu squeaked out a victory against Shimon Peres for his first term as prime minister in 1996. Um, it was clear that the militant right-wing, most right-wing forces of Palestine, meaning Hamas, wanted, did not want the Oslo Accords to succeed because they were committed to their all-or-nothing um, uh, goals, similar to the extreme right-wing in Israel. So the extreme right on both sides have been bedfellows for a long time, making sure that a coexistence moves fail. But my real, my real point... That okay, but I think that was an important thing to, right, to say. They love Netanyahu. My, my real question originally was, when, when Herzl and the Zionists made their plan and proposed what they were proposing, the new nation, did they foresee 
that you could, there would be a problem to have democracy and the Zionist, what was that, there was something in no, that because whole idea it, that was going to wind up the way it wound up now. No. No? I disagree with that statement. They were mimicking nation states all over Europe. These nation states had a secular character that was ethnic. German, French, Italian. The United States is the outlier in nation states. This idea, however, again, um, flawed it is, of a melting pot, is a uniquely American idea and did not take root right at the beginning of the Republic. The, the leaders of the, our founding fathers felt that a democracy was one in which white men who owned property voted, who were wasps, right? So the, there's, even the United States uh, it was uh, cast in this mold. The idea that a progressive nation state could both support a national identity and protect the human rights of all its citizens was not a uniquely Zionist idea. Does that make sense? What, they, what many of the early Zionists, and we're going to talk about this, were, uh, were blind to uh, was um, essentially the existence of the Arab population already living in the land of Palestine. That was a product, again, not of Zionism per se, but of European, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Eurocentrism. That, that the rest of the world is chopped liver. These poor peoples, they'll be glad, you know, we'll lift up the whole boat with our wondrous European culture. Um, they, that was European stuff. Absolutely. It's in the and Declaration of Independence. Of the Zionists. Absolutely, from the beginning. Full citizenship. Absolutely. Twenty percent of Israel's population are not Jewish. They are full citizens of Israel. There is a battle for the soul of Israel, right? There always has been, just like there's a battle for the soul of every nation. Uh, are we in the United States going to be a white man's country, or are we going to be a country for all its citizens? You know, that battle is going on before our eyes. It's, it's in the DNA of our country. It's not new. It surges, and then it, it, there's, there's liberal surges, and then there's reactionary uh, uh, retrenchment. It's the, when you study American history, that's what happens. So, the founders of Israel were, were social democrats. They were liberal. They believed in a vision of a nation state that was a nation for all of its citizens. And uh, when the state of Israel was declared, the Declaration of Independence is crystal clear that two, con are they contradictory? Two, uh, uh, or are they in conflict with each other? Yes, they are in conflict with each other. The two principles were at fourth. One is that the state of Israel would be the home and the refuge for all Jewish people. Secondly, that the state of Israel would be a liberal democracy that ensured the rights of all its citizens regardless, and this is in the Declaration of Independence, regardless of race, creed, or color. 
That is not, for me, an impossible dream. It's not an impossible dream. It still hasn't failed entirely. The, though there are forces in Israel now, reactionary forces, wanting Israel to be just the state of the Jewish people and are trying to pass laws to move Israel in that direction, there, those laws are in contradiction to the founding laws of the state of Israel. There is a battle for the soul of Israel right now. There's a battle. And I think that was created when they created the... Then if you blame Israel for that, you have, if no, you no, give it... No, the idea is, a, there's a problem. You said there's a... There's a problem with the idea of nationalism. There's not an inherent problem with the idea of Zionism. There's a problem with the idea of nationalism. Think of every nation state and what it means to be a, a citizen of the Netherlands or a citizen of, of, of the Congo or a citizen of anywhere where a nation state's been. What's it mean to be part of that nation? We're going to talk about that uh, uh, today. But the, the, the flaw in this is that, hear me out, the, the, not even forces, the tide of anti-Semitism, just as sort of like the currents of anti-Semitism, which exist everywhere, want to make the Jews uniquely responsible for the flaws in nationalism. That is the nature of anti-Semitism. I welcome a critique of nation-states because they are inherently uh, schizophrenic and paradoxical, but the Israel is no more and no less than any other modern nation-state. And uh, that's where we have to, so blame nationalism, but don't blame Israel for some fatal flaw that only Israel has. Okay? Do you understand I'm not letting Israel off the hook? I'm saying it's not Israel, just Israel. It's the emergence of this idea, a new way of collecting ourselves into national identities. Will we, as a human race, transcend national identities into some new organizing principle that allows us to coexist better? I don't know. <laughs> Hope I live a long time to see what happens next. Jane? I have a question about, what about colonialism? Could colonialism have taken over nationalism? Um, I wouldn't say it that way. I would say that what makes the foundation of the state of Israel um, unusual, if not unique, in the story of modern nationalisms, is that it is was also a colonialist enterprise. Right? It was not thought of. So now we're going to get into what is an ins insoluble contradiction. Two things that exist at once in understanding Israel. On the one hand, the Jews who became Zionists in Europe saw the writing on the wall and understood that there was no way they would ever be fully accepted in Europe and that they had to get out. They had an ancestral homeland, the land of Israel. We talked about that last time. That they, in this crazy cockamamie plan decided they could repopulate 
and bring in exiles, Jewish exiles from all over the world. The Jews who went there were trying to rebuild and save their own people's lives. Meanwhile, very few of them were, they were Europeans. And very few of them, but there were some, and I have some readings that we'll get to probably next week, who fully understood this. But very few actually understood how the um, European um, triumphalism and the idea that it was, to, it was almost Europe's right to colonize the world was just a natural thing. So for the people who are living in this, this Ottoman district of Syria, Palestine, when the first Jewish settlers, they weren't even called Zionists yet, started showing up in the 1880s, they said, what the hell's going on here? Right? We're going to have a class later in this series where we examine this idea of dual narratives. Because the only way to understand the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is to understand that each side has a valid story. I'll repeat it. Each side has a valid story. The valid story of the people who are already in the land said, who are these Europeans? And why are they buying our land? And what, what's going on here? We don't want them here. This is our land. And so um, colonialism is sewn in to the, to the story of Zionism. There's no question about it. No question about it. There's no way to make nice about that. But Zionism was not simply a colonialist enterprise. Zionism was also a national liberation movement of a people who didn't have a homeland and wanted to reclaim their homeland. And so it's sad to say that if you want to understand the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, understand that it's an intractable conflict. Intractable. Ben-Gurion certainly understood this and said, said as much. And the only way to solve it would be for intensive compromise on both sides. I don't know what else to say. I don't see any evidence that that compromise is in the offing in the coming decades. Right? Okay, we can talk about peace, 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 peace. I don't see it. Right now, there's a winner and a loser. The winners are the Israelis, the losers are the Palestinians. So, again, that's why I put my energy into these groups that are trying to improve the lives of Palestinians and who are uh, working on making, connecting and building relationships between the Palestinian and Israeli population. It's, it's like, it's not a solution, everybody. There is no solution right now. It's just, okay, what are we going to do um, to strengthen the forces of mutual uh, consideration, um, uh, coexistence, uh, human rights, in the face of a situation that ver- that's, that's essentially running in the opposite direction. I, I was excited and hopeful like when, in 1993 when the Oslo agreements were signed. Some of my Israeli friends, when they failed, were like, I liked the idea, but I thought it was never going to work. 
I still don't think that was necessarily the case. But you needed the will of leadership on both sides, an incredible will of leadership to overcome what I'm describing and, and a fundamental conflict over whose land this is. Right? Um, Jane, am I being clear? Oh, this is wonderful. Okay. Thank you. Um, I saw an interesting documentary on uh, PBS, Mela and the Uprising, Women, War, and Peace. Did you see it? No. It's the story of a courageous, nonviolent women's movement that formed the heart of the Palestinian struggle for freedom during the 1987 uprising, known as the First Intifada. And so if you just click in Naila and the Uprising. How do you spell Naila? N-A-I-L-A. Naila and the Uprising. Yes, about a woman's struggle before the Oslo. Thank you. So you'll see another. Well, the Oslo Agreement was a direct result of the First Intifada, but we're not going to talk about that now. Um, uh, one thing leads to another, and, uh, but thank you. Uh, I also want to say that there's a movement in Israel now called Women Wage Peace that had 30,000 Israeli and Palestinian women marching together in Israel. Uh, and uh, look it up, Women Wage Peace. A, a colleague of mine who made Aliyah to Israel is very involved in that. There are so many efforts that you can still plug into that will make you feel like at least you're, you're contributing in this way to, uh, uh, to the possibility of human connection. And speaking from my perspective, I'll repeat it. It's like on a political and state level, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. Helen. When, when, they, uh, when Herschel and those people described the land that they were going to uh, were they, did they describe it in terms of, of the religious, uh, a religious, from you know, biblical spot, or did they just, in other words, did they already push it, put in? Would no. The biblical imperative oh. to own, to have, to go back to this spot as the, the founders of the Zionist movement, and we'll talk about this again. The founders of the Zionist movement were a profoundly secular group of organizers. The, so no, it was not, it was not, for them the language of God promises land to us was not part of their vocabulary. But we will get into that more. Okay. Yes? Yeah, I have a related question. I think, could you just clarify a little bit the role that Judaism, the religion, played in the initial state back in 48? And the conception of it, and then, like, how, what's happening now. Uh, right. So, um, the original state of Israel was the vision of the labor Zionist party. They were a secular, socialist party who were also nationalists. Now, in Europe, there were nationalist, nationalism and socialism. I'm not talking about the Nazis. Uh, um, uh, Nationalism and socialism, which we come to understand as democratic socialism, uh, were a merged idea among the, uh, among, for many in uh, the idea that a nation state could be created by a, a group of, um, by a national group in which 
they could build a utopian society. So Judaism wasn't like an official religion or anything like that back Okay, we're going to have to talk about Judaism as a religion versus Judaism as the identity of the Jewish people. Um, and I think that will get us into our topic for today. So hold on to that. A- anything else right now? Does, <clears throat> does globalism play a role in nationalism? Glo- now we're into, so when, let's see, what are the roots of globalism? That's an interesting thought. Are, is, is, is it the United Nations? Is that maybe the first, the first manifestation of globalism? Is it when we um, uh, put a man on the moon and we saw the earth from outer space? Is that like the bellwether of a shift? Uh, because we are in an incredible shift right now in human history that takes us into a post-nationalist mode where uh, um, uh, both out of a um, where out of a sense of shared fate more and more human beings are becoming aware that we have to have a globalist perspective out of a sense of shared fate but also willy-nilly because of um, um, electronic commerce and because supply chains are now all over the world and because of the internet we are de facto transcending national borders. Uh, Yeah, Google. So it's all happening faster than we can keep track of right now, right? The the pace of transformation is beyond my ability to describe. So my next question. Hold on. So globalism and nationalism is a very contemporary issue which we can turn to uh, as we you know, keep moving forward in history, but not something to explore in depth right now. Okay, then I'll hold my other question. Yeah, yeah, yes. Um, what happened to the Labour Party in the last few, in the last 20, 30 years? The Labour Zionist Party, which had essentially political hegemony in Israel for its first 30 years, was first voted out of office in 1977. We'll be talking about that. And that in relation, I'd like to, for you to talk a little bit also about what happened with our organizations, the main Jewish organizations in the U.S., how they play a role in Israeli politics in a way, and how they support this current government, most of them, uh, that represents all of us, supposedly, but they don't. Again, in the course of our lifetimes, and we won't talk about that at length now either, in the course of our lifetimes, we have gone, for any of us who have been, you know, sending money to Israel and buying trees and all that since we were little, um, Incredible political transformations have taken place and economic transformations. And um, uh, we'll talk about that later, too. (laughs) Okay, so now let's turn our attention back to the early 19th century. Um, As we described last week, modernity shattered, emancipated the Jews from the ghetto, shattered what had been a cohesive identity for the Jews under, as we talked about, Christendom. And as we ended last class, Jews in Europe, and we're going to start with Western Europe because the pace of change in Eastern Europe was very different. Jews, especially in Western Europe, found themselves slowly, with a lot of struggle over a period of many decades, enfranchised to join fully into 
the nations that had offered them or would eventually offer them citizenship. The, the problem that presented was, as we said last time, was a uniquely modern problem, which was that, okay, I used to be a Jew because I was a Jew. You know, I, I, I mean, my option was what? To convert and become a Christian. Then I wouldn't be a Jew anymore. I was not an Orthodox Jew or a Reformed Jew or a secular Jew. I was maybe a, a pious Jew or the one who liked to gamble and drink, you know, or both, you know. But I, I was, uh, I may have been a Hasidic Jew or a misnugged Jew, you know, it's like, but these were different categories. These were categories where your Jewishness was never, never in, in doubt. Um, and and um, uh, now you're in a whole new ballgame, which is that, and I'll try to alternate between sort of the external, the, the, the host society's problems with the Jews and our Jews, our problems, the Jews' problems with being Jewish in this new setting also, which is, <clears throat> as I said last time, you're faced with countless decisions Daily decisions you never had to face before. What school should I send my kid to? Should I send them to the Jewish school or try to get them into the secular, to the, to the uh, university? It wasn't really that secular back then. Um, uh, should I keep keeping kosher? But I get to go to this salon now. You know, I get to participate in what was a very desirable society, right? These were the, this was, this was the emergence of 19th century Europe. Think about the glories of European culture from, from that century. And the Jews had been in a condition of forced debasement, right? You, you don't have to do this anymore. We can all participate in that. It's like we were like kids in a candy store. Totally understandable why we'd want to flee the ghetto and participate in 19th century Europe. You follow what I'm saying? Um, but you don't just throw away your identity. It's who you are. Many Jews were ready to throw away their identity. Well, I shouldn't say you don't just. Many don't. It's part of your, part of your um, and I'm saying this in a moral, with a moral judgment. It's part of your uh, being. It's your muscles. It's your bones. It's your... You know, um, it's your community, it's your relatives. It's your, yes, Bobby? Did Zephyr uh, the phrase uh, be a Jew at home and a man in the street? Exactly. Uh, and we, remember that, that came out of Samson Raphael Hirsch in Germany in the 1870s. Uh, we're going to talk about that. Um, how to be a Jew at home. So, so, many Jews decided, great. The ticket into European society is to convert to Christianity. Then all obstacles are erased, supposedly. And so many converted. Many Jews converted. Other Jews, that, they, they didn't have it in them to abandon their, their, their identity. And so they sought 
for new expressions of Jewish identity. The earliest new expression of Jewish identity in the 19th century was Reform Judaism. Germany, 1812, 1820. Some Jewish, uh, there are Jews who are part of the Enlightenment, right? They, they, They want to be part of this emerging, incredible new idea. Think about the promise of the American and French revolutions mm. and what, what it offered in terms of an age of reason and an age where we would all be equal. And an, it's an incredible vision which transformed the world. Just the idea of that everyone has unalienable rights. Mm. That never existed before, not in force, uh, though we can argue that there were as I said, precursors to it in the Bible and in ancient Greece. Um, this, was, this was a revolutionary new way of organizing society. So the early Jewish reformers were faced with a problem. To become German, they were thought of as Jews as a fifth column because Jews were also not just a religion. Jews were also a national group in exile. Right? That was our self-identity. Jews were also an ethnicity, Ashkenazi Jews, sep- a separate culture. So what was the Reformed Jews' idea? Which part of Judaism to keep? How to parse it out, peel it apart, and choose part of it, which is obviously, you know, that's what they, that's what they did. Well. Let's get rid of our cultural distinctiveness and let's get rid of any nationalist aspects of our Jewish identity, our collectivist Jewish identity, because then we can be accepted as German citizens. Let's instead just keep the highest religious ideals of our people and take out all the, for them, all the hokum, all the swaying and bobbing, all the superstition, because this is the 19th century. Remember, religion, th- these were, this was a secular revolution. R- religion had to match r- reason and rationalism in order to be valid. Am I making sense, everybody? Yeah. For these early Germans, this was all stuff that had to be jettisoned so they could enter the modern mainstream. And, the, and you know, we might feel, we could feel critical of that, from our very privileged position of having somehow landed in the United States where I can be a Jew on the street, right? But that was not the case in the beginning of 19th century Europe. Um, you'd never, it, would never, it had never been safe to be a Jew on the street and basically never would be, though there were periods of greater and lesser accommodation until uh, over the next 150 years. <clears throat> so they said, we are going to reform Judaism and show that it is truly, the, the essence of Judaism is truly ethical monotheism. That we are, it's, an, it's, a, it's a set of ideals and principles. And we are going to reform Judaism so that we adopt the worship patterns of our German neighbors. And we are going to, instead of having uh, uh, the... the uh, everyone praying at the same time 
and the rabbi or the prayer leader facing the ark and everyone. But we are going to make decorum happen. We are going to have the rabbi wear a robe and preach. And we are going to have, have pews. And men and women, for goodness sake, are going to sit together like modern people. Making sense to everybody? Reform Judaism was an attempt to solve this problem that Jews had, which is how to enter these very desirable societies um, uh, and not give up everything about being Jewish and make Judaism acceptable to the whole society. Now, to make Judaism acceptable, this is where we can't lose, keep our, we can't take our eye off the ball. These societies were endemically anti-Semitic. So it wasn't just, if we act like the Protestants, it'd be okay. It's like, let's act more than the Protestants, more Protestant than the Protestants, so that maybe they'll accept us. Right? This is such a complex uh, dynamic. I saw some hands there. Yes. Yeah. About the language. What? The language. Yeah. The Hebrew was sort of taken away also. Right, they took like out they Hebrew out because, because German... Okay, so now let's talk about what makes a nation a nation. Right. A nation is a nation because of a shared language, right. a shared land, a fatherland, um, a shared culture, however much that is not actually true, but cultural ideals of, you know, Teutonic ideals of Germanism, plus a shared mythic history of heroes and uh, how we came to be. Right? Keep that in mind. All of that is the myth with a small m that we create in order to create a national identity. Rachel. Rachel. Sure. Civic rituals, absolutely. Holidays that we all share. Mm -hmm. Food and a centralized government where those are enforced. I mean, do you know that uh, most Jews in the early 1800s didn't have last names? Because that's a a modern phenomenon, right? But if you want to be in the records of the of the town clerk. You need a last name. That's when many Jews began acquiring last names. It's a fascinating story. Um, And not just Jews, but other peasants and the village people also at that point. So all of that, what makes us a nation, is um, uh, the Jews are anomalous. The Jews were anomalous in Europe before nationalism emerged because we were this people apart in the Christian world, and the Jews are still anomalous in nationalist uh, settings. So one solution most desired by Jews, remember, this is an opportunity to participate in an incredible emerging society of science and culture, and not to mention, in, and we should mention the Industrial Revolution as well. Right, incredible transformations and uh, excitement uh, would be to just limit yourself to Judaism as a faith, the Mosaic faith. Let's jettison Hebrew because we want to embrace German to show that we're Germans. And certainly let's join the army 
um, to show that we're uh, patriotic, and on and on and on. As that century, as the 19th century wore on, there were other religious responses. Conservative Judaism also originally took root in Germany. It was known as the science of Judaism. What was it called in der um, Wissenschaft der Judentum? Which was another attempt to uh, show that um, we were modern, we were going to study the history of Judaism, and, and uh, it could be a, a field of study that would be our way of expressing, this is a very shorthand, of expressing our connection to our Jewish past, but it would be an historic connection. And we were retaining the rituals out of a, a sense of history. Um, the conservative movement in this country is a slightly different story, and we won't talk about that right now. Um, but the embrace of acad acad academia and scholarship as a way to make Jewish a study, right? Um, the earliest Orthodox Jew was Samson Raphael Hirsch, who was a really inspiring, brilliant rabbi in the late 19th century Germany, who created what's known as modern orthodoxy. Who was the one, I believe, who said that we want to be a Jew at home and a man on the street? Now think about the irony and the painfulness of that statement. But at the time, it was another attempt to retain the dignity of being a Jew, uh, even though from our perspective, it's like, it sounds, sounds, sounds like some capitulation or some downgrading of, 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 of Jewish identity to, but the, the privatization of Jewish identity was what that was about. Let's be Jewish in ways that we can be religiously, but let's compromise so that we can circulate effectively in the wider society. Um, uh, and uh, all of these are attempts to retain some aspect of Judaism. And the, they, they would then, the modern Orthodox, were much more traditional than the Reform. They wanted to retain the traditional forms of worship. But they wanted to do so in a way that also permitted them, that they gave themselves permission to travel in the uh, wider society also. Um, Nancy? Well, um, I was just wondering, don't you think it's sort of a chicken and the egg? Because it's not like in Germany they were living in a, in a shtetl and they were just Jews living in a shtetl. They were already in the cities. They were already getting... Wait, what year are you talking about? I'm talking about, like, if we talk about the 19th century and even the early parts of it. So that, well, and it's something that we see here too, and it's really the word is assimilation. As they started to assimilate, it's like all of a sudden Hanukkah became like Christmas. You know, we, they have Christmas, we have Hanukkah, and we have a Hanukkah bush or something like that. So it was, they were all, that's why I say it's a chicken and the egg. You're describing it as if uh, they wanted to, but they were already there, and it just felt like, well, will be sort of like them. We don't need to have all these rituals outside. We can, and if you look at any synagogue in any culture, they started kind of assimilating the architecture, the right. little bit of it, and we have it right here. Let me make a broader statement about that. I'm a reconstructionist rabbi. That means 
I was trained in this understanding of Judaism that was um, uh, um, laid out by Rabbi Mordechai Kaplan in the, uh, starting in the 1920s, that understands that Judaism's greatness is our ability to adapt to the host civilizations that we were in and still retain our, a through line of our sense of Jewish identity. So in a much bigger, bigger picture, um, when you ask what's, when you, when you look at, uh, say, the ways Jews dressed through the, through the ages, they dressed like everybody else dressed. Um, uh, it, you know, if they were in the Roman Empire, they dressed like, in the medieval uh, Europe, they dressed like medieval Europeans. In Arab countries, they dressed like uh, Arabs and Muslims. It's like, it, what's Jewish music? Jewish music was an integration of musical forms from the surrounding culture. Jews have always, part of our genius for survival has always been our ability to adapt to the larger host civilization's forms and uh, still retain our, our through sense of identity. Um, uh, just a minute, Sian, please. I'll recognize you in a minute. Um, so, yes, chicken or egg is a good question. These forces are much larger than we think we're choosing, but there are much larger cultural forces m sort of carrying us along. Uh, and I think it's helpful still to describe these as they were, which was conscious efforts to try to remake Jewish identity in a way that would be um, compatible with living in modern, modern Europe. Uh, so it wasn't all just willy-nilly. These were, these were philosophers and thinkers actively trying to reconstitute the Jewish body. Now, saying about reconstituting the Jewish body is important because we were fragmented, even in exile, before the modern era, before we were emancipated from the ghettos, we had a sense of a corporate, of being a Jewish body. Now we're all Jewish individuals trying to kind of flounder our way into what it means, how do we fracture ourselves so that we can be both? Or maybe it's not going to work, maybe we should be neither. And this is where it's important to understand that ultra-Orthodox Judaism is also a response to modernity. All Jews before emancipation were not ultra-Orthodox. That's what ultra-Orthodox wants you to believe because that's what fundamentalists do, is say it's always been this way and we're just keeping it this way. But that's not historically accurate. Um, ultra-Orthodoxy, which really starts to take root around the year 1800, is a response to the very same forces that all of these other religious responses are. And that response is, we are going to put the walls up higher and keep modernity out. That is also a response to modernity. That's important to understand. They're not the one true group. Uh, they changed dramatically in the late 18th and early 19th century, which is why the most orthodox sects wear the clothes they wear. The clothes, the knickers, the long coats, the fur hats, all the things that you identify when you think of an ultra-Orthodox Jew, they, like the Amish, they, but in a different way, 
they decided to freeze even the way they dress at that moment when they said, no more, we're not participating. Except for the phones. Well, it's, except for the phones. It's a, it, you can't keep the wider forces out, right? There's no actual hermetic seal uh, for keeping modernity out. But what I'm trying to explain is the, way they, the reason they dress that way, when, when you see a, 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 a chassid dressed up for, in his Shabbat clothes, those are the clothes of 18th century Polish nobility. That's what they are. The knickers, the kind of shoes they wear, the long coat, the fur hat. Polish nobility. Okay? Why? Because you wear your Shabbos best. But, they tried, but their attempt was just to freeze it in time and say no more, no further. Um, does that make sense, everybody? So every religious denominational response, every religious denomination in Judaism is a modern attempt to cope with modernity. And by the anti-Semitism? Also with anti-Semitism? Coping with modernity and coping with anti-Semitism are the same thing. <laughs> it's not a, hey, Jews, welcome. Right. It never was. So we're always got, we're all, Jews are always very self-consciously in all of these attempts, wondering how the goyim, which is what the Yiddish word for the non-Jews, how the goyim will see us. Right? It's a very complicated existence. One of the things that Zionism was, because it understood itself as a revolutionary movement, was to say, screw this. We're not going to worry about how the Goyim look at us anymore because we're going to reconstitute ourselves and we're going to get to that as a nation state where we're in charge of our own affairs, damn it, once and for all. Uh, see ya. Yes, and that's what we just said, yes. No, 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 Cien, no. Um, there were long periods in the 19th century in Western Europe when Jewish, Jews' lives were not in danger. There, they were, they were looked at askance, they were suspected, they were not welcomed, but no, the 19th century didn't become murderous for Jews until the 1880s. So you've got to keep that in mind. This was, this was not a period of, uh, of intense anti-Jewish violence. Ruth? How would you describe um, the way Jewish renewal became Jewish renewal as a response to anti-Semitism? No, it has nothing to do with it, Ruth. Jewish renewal is a product of the 1960s and comes out of the, the world of the 1960s. Okay, so No, Jewish renewal is a uniquely American 1960s event. Right. So in the same way, how would you see conservative Judaism as its response to modernity and anti-Semitism? Um, conservative Judaism in this country, in the United States, Reform Judaism was the bailiwick of German Jews. When Eastern European Jews started pouring into this country and went to Reform synagogues, they thought they were on Mars 
They thought this was total trafe. They couldn't believe it. But they wanted to be good Americans too. And, it, and they had freedom of religion here, so they could create their own synagogues that were modern and where the men and women would sit together, but where we keep our Ashkenazi ways. That's conservative Judaism. Does that make sense? Conservative Judaism in this country is the product of Eastern European immigration. Reform Judaism in this country is the product of German immigration, German Jew, which happened starting in the 1840s. But Ashkenazi immigration didn't start until the 1880s. And that's why Temple Emmanuel in Kingston was founded in 1865, whereas Ahavath Israel was founded in, in, in you know, 1900. That's, that's all just movement of different Jewish ethnic groups. Um, that's not the province of this course, but since we're talking about denominations, I hope that's helpful to you. Yes, because it does relate to how we see Zionism from different perspectives in these levels of observance. Well, that is very important, actually. It's not just from levels of observance. You may or may not be aware that the reform movement prior to World War II was intensely and uh, intensely anti-Zionist. For them, our success as Jews had been our ability to make Judaism into an acceptable monotheistic faith. And all of this nationalist stuff was just going to undermine all of our gains in Western society. Does that make sense, everybody? What the Orthodox too, though? Very different. Very, very different. The Orthodox resistance to Zionism was based on the fact that they were waiting for a supernatural messianic event to occur. And that the idea that we could be the agents of our own redemption was essentially, had to be false. Because we were waiting for God to redeem us. That's the, that's the roots of the Orthodox resistance to the state of Israel. Is that it was the state of Israel, the Zionist, Zionism was a fundamentally secular nationalist movement. How could that be the actual final redemption? That's how the Orthodox viewed it. Hold on. Uh, you know, this, these questions all seem to be following a similar line, which is why I'm pursuing them. The reform movement was in a very different situation. They, they, they had gotten rid of all that. They, they thought the Orthodox were worse than the Zionists. I just yeah. meant similar, similarity in terms of opposition. Opposition, not, not yes. for the same reasons. Right, right. Very different reasons. Um, it wasn't until after the Holocaust that, there were, that most of the reform movement became supporters of Zionism when they realized what had happened. Um, let's see. Uh, David and then Helen, and there were hands over here. Yes. Yeah, but, I think the, the point that you made last week and earlier today, it's so important, is that the early Zionist idea was self-determination. Exactly. Instead of assimilation. Right. Well put. Well put. The assimilation is a modern problem where you can, this idea is that somehow you can assimilate enough of yourself into the dominant society and still retain some kernel of your own particularist identity, right? That's assimilation. Prior to, remember, prior to modernity, there was no assimilation. There was like either or. Um, And when Zionism emerges, which is where my timeline is slowly going, uh, is when enough European Jews recognize 
that they will never be able to fully assimilate into European societies. That's when Zionism emerges, at the very end of the 19th century, uh, when a lot of the hopes that were being raised had been substantially dashed so that enough Jews said, we, we need another solution. Uh, yes? Well, maybe that is an answer to one question that I was thinking about, is why America, it, it's so different for American Jews because there is no homogeneous society that we have to assimilate into. It's easier here. You don't have it's, to assimilate. It's way easier here. here without assimilating. That's right. So you've kind of eliminated to some degree uh, one of the roots of anti-Semitism. We have it, but it's not because we're not fitting in. Yes. We can do, we can, everybody looks different here. It, it's the recipe different. that is the United States of America has been, is, is, is it, it's exceptional and uh, has allowed for more of that kind of integration of different kinds of people into an idea of Americanness than any other nation state, I think, in the world. Um, I, I agree. Uh, let's see, there were a couple, was it, was, okay. Uh, Arnie, please. In this discussion, please don't forget the Spartan who are small but very okay. important and the first. Let me explain. So, Jewish culture, there were many Jewish cultures. Everyone shared a sense of uh, common history and destiny. All the Jews, what, what it meant to be a Jew was that you were part of this group that shares a history and a destiny. But there were different subcultures. The subculture we're talking about are the Ashkenazim. The Ashkenazim are the Jews of Northern and Central and Eastern Europe, and Western Europe to, some degree, to, to a certain degree. The Sephardim are the Jews of Spain, who had then been uh, um, uh, expelled in 1492 and scattered around the Mediterranean, especially into the, uh, Greece and Turkey. And At this time in the 19th century, Sephardim made up about 10% of the world Jewish population, and Ashkenazim made up about 90% of the world Jewish population. So the action in Jewish history was really happening in Europe, partly because when, you, when I study history, Jewish centers of power always emerge because the Jews there happened to land in a place that had large influence. So in other words, New York Jews how, you know, have a lot of influence in the world. It wouldn't happen if Ellis Island had been in, uh, uh, you know, where 10,000 Jews came in through um, Corpus Christi down in uh, Texas. If all the Jews came into Texas, but Texas is not the financial cap and, and, and cultural capital of the world, the Jews land there may not have had the kind of influence that the Jews of New York have had. And when you study Jewish history, the Babylonian Talmud surpasses the Palestinian Talmud, and I won't get into this, because it's taking place in Baghdad, the center of the Muslim Caliphate. They're the ones with the, with the communication routes, with the money, with the access to power. So again, Eastern European Jews, 
and Central European Jews were part of the, 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 the European century. And so they had much more influence on Jewish world affairs than the Sephardim did. Does that make sense? Uh, yes. Right. In the Middle Ages, the Sephard Ashkenazi Jews were in the backwater of the Rhine, right? They were that. This was like the the forests of Europe, whereas the height of civilization was Islam, in the Golden Age of Islam. And the Jews who lived in those Islamic <laughs> countries were known as Sephardic Jews, uh, and with other names, and in other Spain, groups and too. Spain too. Do you have and well, uh, no, 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 that's what I'm saying. Spain was under the control of the Islam. So while Islam was ascendant, the Sephardic Jews were the greatest producers of philosophy, poetry, literature in the Jewish world. The greatest thinkers were all Sephardim. The Zohar is a Sephardic product. The Jewish mysticism, all of that. And then, they, then, then mathematics, all of it. The great Jewish Sephardic leaders of Spain and, and southern France were simultaneously, um, uh, 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 Gersonides was simultaneously a great Torah scholar and the greatest astronomer of his generation, right? So, so that was in the Middle Ages. As Islam declines, that influence also declines. As Europe rises, the Ashkenazi influence rises. Again, I'm telling you all this because it's so important to recognize that we are floating on a river of history. And that so much that happens to us is the product of historical accident. Um, uh, you want to add to that, Arnie? Just one last thing. Uh, also, Zionism and the Dreyfus Affair are contemporaneous events, mm -hmm. and they're very... We're getting to it, Arnie. Okay. <laughs> don't worry. But I don't want... But, Arnie, you have to understand. Un, for me, unless people understand this, the, the context of this, the Dreyfus Affair doesn't, is, is much less meaningful. Uh, yes? to note that the first Jewish settlers in this country were the uh, Spanish-Portuguese Jewish settlers. So, I'll get you in a minute, Ruth. Uh, again, on another detour in Jewish history, uh, many of the Jews who were expelled from Spain, fleeing the Inquisition, ran for their lives. One of the places they could go to was Brazil and the Caribbean islands. And Amsterdam. That's right, first Amsterdam, yeah. And then from there with the Dutch uh, West India Company right. to um, uh, Recife and, pardon me? Right, they could not come into New York because it was no Jews allowed. Well, wait a second, wait a second, yeah, 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 yeah. Just let me finish my thought, please. Um, from, from, they got to Amsterdam, they were running from the Inquisition. Right. When the Inquisition caught up with them in the battles between Spain and the Netherlands, here in the New World, Brazil, some of the Caribbean islands, they came to the colonies. Peter Stuyvesant didn't want to accept the Jews. His boss said, you have to take them in. Because some of our uh, biggest finance, our, our contributors are Jews. Right, that's right, right, right. A, okay, but I, again... It was a cap capitalism... This is, yes, it was the... Money. Where, if, you if you trace the history of capitalism, you will also understand, follow the money, right. and yes, right. all of that, all where the influence is, all of that, all of that. But this isn't a course on American Jewish history. Ruth? <laughs> Okay, so 
North, in addition to the Ashkenazim and the Sephardim, there were many other uh, venerable Jewish communities that had been living in where they'd been living China, for, India. for well, China, not so much, but uh, uh, India's India. from the middle. Just a minute. <laughs> much more important than those communities, the Jews of Iraq and Persia. They are not Sephardim. They are called Mizrahi Jews. They had been there since the Babylonian exile, 2,500 years of continuous residence in that area. The Romani Jews, who, who were from the Roman Empire, who lived in Italy and Greece. The, then there were real outliers, like, some, uh, like the Ethiopian Jews, um, who were completely, and the Yemenite Jews, who were completely out of the discourse. Right? But when we talk in a, in a schematic way about uh, Jewish history, we talk about the Ashkenazim and the Sephardim. But that is also a, I think we need to modify that at this mm. point, because I studied a Eurocentric Jewish history. We all did. And so it's a really important corrective, and I'm just thinking this, I've read some articles about this recently, and it's like sinking in, that it would, it'll benefit, it'll deeply benefit our understanding of Judaism if we go more towards a multicultural and global view yeah. of uh, Jewish studies. So thanks for mentioning that. Um, so yes. just to clarify in my own head, when, when, when Theodor Herzl and his, and his group began to develop this notion of Zionism, yeah. it was completely separate from a religious yes. overtone. Yes, completely. And we're going to get to that momentarily. Uh, so now we've discussed all of the emergence of denominations of Judaism. There were many Jews who rejected Jewish religion entirely, but did not want to reject their Jewish identity. Yeah. Right? So um, uh, they might be... Uh, they might just have, understand that they have Jewish cultural heritage, like many Jews in this country, mm -hmm. right? Because in Western Europe, during the better decades, it was possible to become a hair professor or a doctor or this or that and still have a Jewish name, you know, and still, like, retain some sense of, I would say, at that point, nostalgic connection to your grandparents' religious ways that you had outgrown. Sound familiar? Yeah. Right? So that was happening. And that was a general trend. But then there were more conscious efforts. And these grew out of the emergence of socialism. So remember socialism, Karl Marx, who was also from a Jewish family that had baptized itself, had taken, become baptized, um, and Engels, this was a response to the Industrial Revolution and to the idea of early liberal, this liberal idea of society, of a laissez-faire economy, and of um, that. So they said, yeah, are we supposed to have actual, have equal rights for everybody? Then how come the people who control the means of production get to have all the influence, right? And uh, the, so the ideas of socialism emerge, which have many, per many permutations in European history, obviously, for everything from social democracy, which is the idea of a state that then develops ways to ensure 
the rights and basic dignity of all its citizens uh, to socialist revolution and communism. Um, now, if you're a Jew in the middle 19th century of Europe, and number one, the whole atmosphere is shot through with messianic-like visions of how, how the world is being perfected by us in this astonishing, and it was the Industrial Revolution that changes this astonishing new age. Um, and then you're also, so, and also you're seeing the incredible degradation of workers and abuse of workers all through the cities of Europe where people have been pouring in from the countryside for work. Um, so you're, you're an idealistic young Jew who's embraced the European uh, way. way, and so you're caught up in this fervor, right? And uh, that's another natural way to do it. But it also, there's self-interest involved, whether it's conscious or not. What's the self-interest? Jews are being accepted in Europe, sort of, right? It's always with the back of the hand, mm -hmm. always. And furthermore, um, even if you convert now, you come from a Jewish family. <laughs> because religious identity has been replaced by national identity. And what makes you a true German? What? Your bloodline. Right? So now, Jews are finding in subtle ways that they're even, they have even fewer options uh, to continue, even if they convert, they run into obstacles because they're not real whatevers. Germans. Germans is the best one to say, but it's going to be true in France too and yeah. in the other countries as well. <coughs> so, uh, yes, sir. Is this the result of uh, Darwin and Darwinism? Well, it's not the result of Darwinism. It's the result, and again, I really want to read more about this. It's the result of social Darwinism which is a bastardization yeah. of Darwin right. that can justify survival of the fittest amongst societies and becomes a pretext yeah. for Aryan yeah, supremacy right. and all other yeah, kinds of national uh, um, uh, triumphalism. That's social Darwinism, and we, I've learned we definitely should not blame Darwin for that. He was much more subtle and, 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 and wise. Yeah, Joan? Really good. Documentary on um, Birth of a Nation, where they talk about the social Darwinism that got manifest, so that it would explain the whole uh, racist philosophy. Right, social Darwinism explains white supremacy. Yeah. yeah, and it explains, you know, hey, some races are simply superior than others, and it's witnessed by our domination of these other races. The proof's in the pudding. We must be superior, right? That's social Darwinism. Right? And, and uh, it's definitely, Darwin's theories definitely get taken up in those, in those ways in the 19th century, yes. Um, that's an important thing to note. So, um, so it's also in the Jewish self-interest for many to seek a uh, world revolution that will be classless in which you know, to each according to their needs and to each according to their uh, means. And it's a beautiful vision. And it also is another solution to the Jewish problem. Okay, so let's talk about this word again. 
the Jewish problem is coined as what do we do with Jews, by the Christians, as what do we do with Jews now that we've given them citizenship? Now that they've seen Paris. Now that they've seen Paris, right. Right, and that's the Jewish problem. And what's so horrible about it is that it makes us a problem. We're not a problem. We're just people trying to live, right? It's their problem. But because Jews have been absorbing this for so long, Jews also embrace it and consider their own existence to be a Jewish problem to be solved. And many Jewish writers are constantly writing in the 19th century about how are we going to solve the Jewish problem. And the solutions range from, as we've said before, complete assimilation, that in time we will disappear, and the Jewish problem is solved, and anyway, we're part of this march towards a perfect society, so that's okay. Some, some things have to be sacrificed. And of course, in the insidious nature of the way Jews had internalized anti-Semitism, I guess it's going to be us. You follow what I mean? What other culture would consider committing harikari? If they hadn't been persuaded that they were the problem. Right? This is the lie about when someone says, why be Jewish? Right? Why be Jewish? Like it's like a problem. The answer I always give now is, why not be Jewish? What kind of, what kind of question is that? Well, it's a question conditioned by endemic, pervasive anti-Semitism. Right? Who else is apologizing for their culture and saying, we have to disappear? It just That's again, will swing us back to why when Israel is held up as a uniquely problematic nationalism, it's part of the anti-Semitic yeah. gestalt, yeah. right? Because it's a question no other nation would ask or would be asked of. Uh, despite their human rights abuses. No one's saying, why is there a Syria when, when their leader just uh, murdered 10% of his own population? Right. No one's saying Syria should be dismantled and there shouldn't be a Syria anymore. Right? It's like, I can't express this in enough different ways. We are swimming in the waters of anti-Semitism when we ask the question that way. But there was no way that European Jews weren't going to be swimming in that water. It was so hard to climb out. Think about, again, um, many, of my, many of my women friends who finally got their head out of the dark, the, the painful quality of what it's like to walk around as a woman, say, wait a minute, maybe there's nothing wrong with me for being a woman. It's like, well, it's the same. And if you can just get a little glimpse of that, yes, yes, you're not the problem. It's the same thing with Jews. I cannot emphasize that enough. When we have our debates about why, why be Jewish, you know, what's wrong with Judaism? What, it's like we have, we have bought the oppressive narrative. That's right. Well, maybe I shouldn't dress this way. Maybe then I'll be treated better. You know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm like, how do I, you know? No, the danger's real. It's objective. That's because there are assholes out there and it's not your fault. Let's change the system. Okay. <sighs> I'm a me too, all the way. Okay, so Helen and Jane. I guess that's where you get black is beautiful. 
Absolutely. The Black is Beautiful movement was a, was a specific response to uh, enough black people saying, wait, this racism, it's just, it's completely wrong. Yes? What's wrong with Yiddish? Oh, um, great. Would you remember that question? Uh, because that's going to come up big time in our, what's wrong with Yiddish? The Zionist movement embraces Hebrew and denounces Yiddish. The short answer is the Zionist movement was a revolutionary movement. It wanted to create a new Jew. It therefore identified Yiddish as the language of exile, a pastiche, a jargon. And we want to create a new Hebrew identity as free people in our own land with our ancient ancestral language. So in the dialectic, in the either or that represents every revolutionary movement, uh, he, uh, the Zionists rejected Yiddish as the language of exile. Rejecting a lot, a lot of our culture. Uh, Jane, am I endorsing revolutionary movements? <laughs> I'm describing revolutionary, I'm describing revolutionary movements. Revolutionary movements have incredible value in getting us off the starting block. But then their, their, their um, making of the world into this or that, that the very dialectic nature of revolution is, uh, leads to, it always comes back and bites you in the butt. And uh, that's why you know it's useful to talk about post-Zionism, which has been a a, uh, a subject of discussion. Okay, we did it. We made our own country. Let's, uh, now we needed that revolutionary fervor. We needed people willing to sacrifice their lives for it. We needed people willing to leave their families behind and, and really uh, uh, expose themselves to infectious diseases and, and slave in the fields and do all the things that it took to build a country. That took revolutionary fervor. And now, it doesn't serve us anymore. That's, a, that's the good question. But uh, that's, that's why not Yiddish. That's why. why. What? Would you repeat the sentence? Um, uh, the Zionism, um, uh, uh, Yiddish was the language of? Exile. 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 Not everyone, not all the Jews spoke Yiddish. That was the old country someplace else. There were many Jews who did not speak Yiddish. So mm -hmm. this was a new country, a new Jew, a new language. It wasn't a new language. Well, it was our, this is crucial, language. it was our original language. We modernized the language, but not all the Jews. So let, let me express this. The Zionist thinkers were, the primary Zionist thinkers were mostly Eastern European Jews from Russia and Poland, where everyone spoke Yiddish. They all spoke Yiddish unless they were among the few who had been permitted out of the Pale of Settlement and were living in Odessa and were, and were speaking Russian and, and French. So, they all spoke Yiddish. In their analysis, and they weren't even thinking about the Sephardim, right? right. The Sephardim weren't even on their radar. Right. Um, uh, in that world, um, Yiddish, the, the, in the Zionist analysis, we had become weakened and um, not just weakened, but um, 
Okay, I'll just say corrupted. weakened. Corrupt, corrupted, weakened by our condition of exile. We had become servile. We had become physically weak. We had lost touch with our working in the earth with our hands. And the solution to this, and this was a disease. This was like a malady of the Jewish people, the product of being in exile. And some of it was true. Because um, Jews had been prevented from many of these activities in their exiled condition. But also, for the Zionists, in the condition of exile is a condition of powerlessness. And if generation after generation you inculcate a sense of watch out for the man because mm-hmm. we've got to, you know, and you cower, you have incorporated exile into your very being. And Zionism, in addition to wanting to solve the external Jewish problem that I described, which is that we couldn't be accepted fully in these societies, was also trying to solve the internal Jewish problem as they analyzed it. Does that make sense, everybody? Mm-hmm. Which was a sense of, um, of, of uh, accumulated powerlessness. Yeah. And in their dialectic, the difference was exile or homeland. Mm-hmm. And in creating a new Jew, we would also be, in creating a, Jew, a new Jewish culture, we would also be creating a new Jew. Yeah. This was explicit, articulated, it was what it was all about. And, uh, you know, there were groups called, let's see. Uh, okay, I, I think I may take that digression. So, Yiddish was identified as the language of exile. With that revolutionary fervor, Yiddish needed to be replaced with our true language. Because these early Zionists were creating a new national mythos. Right? And every, every national group had a language. So therefore, the languages that Jews were speaking all over the world, whether it was uh, Ladino or Judeo-Arabic or Yiddish, or the language of their host countries, because that's the language they knew, mm-hmm. needed to all be, rep- those were all the products of exile, and were all, made, all had to be expunged from the Jewish character. And a new language, mm-hmm. uh, the, res- the resumption of our ancient language needed to be a- accomplished. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where the downing. That's where the the denigration of Yiddish comes from. Makes sense in its context, right? Yeah. Right. Um, there was another factor, which is that. And now we've moved over to Eastern Europe, where most of this action was, uh, and I, we'll we'll circle back around. Which was that the um, Yiddish was also experiencing a cultural revival in the nineteenth century, as was Hebrew. And these people were Yiddishites. This is where all the great Yiddish literature comes from. Shalom Aleichem and Peretz and uh, Mendel Mochersforim and Yiddish poetry and Yiddish newspapers and Yiddish theater. By and large, the folks who embraced Yiddish were against the idea of a Jewish national movement in the land of Israel. They wanted to create a Jewish national culture where they were. Yiddishism. They tended to be socialist. In 1897, the same year that the first Zionist Congress met, was the first uh, uh, organization of the Bund, the Yiddish labor movement. Uh, And they were, the two of them, even though you could be from the same shtetl or the same town, 
and you'd spend most of your time arguing with your Zionist friends or your Buddhist friends about what the right path for the Jews would be. This was all tempered by incredible urgency and anxiety because of the, the, the continual and unbelievably murderous pogroms that were taking place. So the solution to the Jewish problem seemed so imperative at this time in Eastern Europe. Uh, okay, well, so that's a little excursion into Yiddish and, and Hebrew. But there's another one. Yeah. In the United States, at least in, 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 in New York, there was the Schiller movement. The Schiller movement starts in Europe at the same time oh. and comes with the immigrants leaving Russia and Poland to New York. But its origins, Yiddishism, its origins are in Eastern Europe in the uh, mid to late 19th century. The Shula movement is what they brought with them. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, there are another response to, um, to the Jewish problem in Europe, therefore, is Jews who become part of the socialist revolution. It's socialism, right? So that means religion is ixne, right? So these people try to create, try to take a different thread of Jewish, the Jewish tapestry, the cultural thread. And they embrace Jewish culture, but not religion. God forbid. <laughs> right? They have a new religion. It's socialism, right? And I want to praise all the socialist Jews who came to this country, built the U.S. labor movement, risked their necks and lost their lives. And it's like they weren't wrong either. Everybody's just, we're all just, they're all just trying, right? Um, it's not my heritage. I, I don't see, I, come, I, I, didn't, I didn't have any socialists in my, in my family. I don't know why. But, um, but many of us did. They made their own societies, their own new newspapers, their own, and they were fervently both culturally Jewish and embracing of the idea of a, a socialist revolution. Um, and some went back to Russia from here. Some went back to Russia from here because they were so committed. This was the true faith, just as Zionism was the true faith for some. Right? Because Zionism was also... The Zionism that, that really builds the state of Israel, There's, there are other streams of Zionism which we'll explore in future classes, especially religious Zionism. But religious Zionism emerges several decades after uh, the Zionist movement is already uh, firmly established. So Zionism is a socialist. They're socialists, but they believe that they need to and deserve to and must create a Jewish nation-state in order to realize the full flowering of their socialist dream, where they are in charge of their own means of production, where the Jews are the workers and the Jews are the owners. And they were not unique in this regard. Other European uh, nations also were embracing this kind of idea. The difference was that the Jews weren't in Israel. They were, they were dreaming this up. Uh, so, the, so socialism and Yiddishism were another response, a cultural 
response and a cultural national response because they wanted to be a... There was the movement in Eastern Europe until it all got blown to hell uh, you know, by the Soviet Union uh, becoming a, what it became, um, uh, where the Jews would be an autonomous national group within the Socialist Republic, right? And this is why so many people you might have known here in this country never, ever accepted that Stalin was a bad guy, right? Because right? This, this was their Messiah. This was their faith. Um, so here's what happened. I saw a hand before. Excuse me. Yes, Bobby. When you separate culture from religion, you get something that doesn't last more than a generation because the, the culture without the religion is kind of like hanging over the cliff. That is the critique of um, secular Judaism. The critique of secular Judaism is it does not have enough glue to really transmit for more than a couple of generations. Yeah. And uh, those remaining sec committed secular Jews in this country will argue that with you. They haven't given up yet. Um, but it's, I think, a legitimate critique of secular Judaism that culture itself is not enough. It's not enough of the whole picture of identity to, to be able to last more than a certain amount of time. Um, okay. It's very interesting, isn't it? Okay, so now. In Western Europe, assimilation has gone apace. Uh, and Jews are um, uh, uh, very much integrated into British and French and German society. They've gained full citizenship despite the obstacles that have been placed in front of them. And uh, um, there's an intense amount of intermarriage and assimilation. Meanwhile, in Eastern Europe, as the 19th century continues, um, the mo modernity never quite came to the Russian Empire. I mean, the serfs were freed in, what, 1840 or something like that? For, in Russia? In Russia. No. Well, then they, maybe... Not they, until the 20th century with the serfs free. Right, okay. So, it, it, and the Jews in, in Eastern Europe were restricted to what was called the Pale of Settlement, right. uh, which is where all, you know, millions of Ashkenazi Jews live. Some fortunate few managed to move to Odessa. Odessa was a fairly new city that had been built down on the Black Sea and was cosmopolitan and open and an anomaly. In, in the Russian world. And out of Odessa came so much Jewish culture and thought in the late 19th century. In 1881, in 1879, right around then, the tide of progress starts to turn. A pamphlet is, is written by a guy named, I think it was Wilhelm Barr, called Germanness versus Jewishness, which lays out this like eternal battle between Arianism and the Jews, you know, and what the Jews represent. And uh, um, many European Jews just laugh this off. This guy is a quack. But it is, um, 
he who coins the term, I believe it was him, forgive me, I'll have to look this up again, anti-Semitism. And the idea now that there is a, not just a Christian sort of um, uh, eternal spiritual conflict with the Jews waiting for the second coming, but there is an eternal conflict between German, the German nation and what it represents and the Jew. And so what's happened is that Judaism has become racialized. Okay? The Jews were never a race. Race theory itself is all made up. When you go to Israel and you look at the Jewish community there on any street, you see Jews of every color, every hair color, every everything. Jews are not a race, even if race was a legitimate category. Um, but the Jews now, rather than being a religion, are identified as a race. If you come from a racial background, you can't convert from your race. You are the eternal enemy of the Jewish people. And so anti-Semitism is almost like a weaponized Christian anti-Judaism. Because there's no way out. No way out. Remember what happened uh, in, uh, if, in, in, in Hitler's Germany. If you were one-eighth right. Jewish heritage, you were a Jew. Right? Didn't matter. Um, meanwhile, in Eastern Europe, um, in 1881, government-sanctioned massive pogroms break out against the Jewish population. Thousands of people are slaughtered. Businesses and synagogues destroyed. Incredible terror. They go on and on. 1881 is the year that Jews started pouring out of Eastern Europe and heading to the United States. Okay. Good. Okay. Um, uh, in this climate, many of the most hopeful now we're, we're about 15 years before Herzl, okay? Western Europe is going to catch up, but the seeds of Zionism emerge in Eastern Europe after the pogroms in 1881. And various Jewish enlightened thinkers there, folks who've made it out of the ghetto and are living in Odessa, start to write about that maybe there will never be a, a home for us here. And if we're, gonna, if we're going to sur survive and thrive and solve the Jewish problem, maybe we have to also reconstitute ourselves as a nation. <coughs> the idea is absurd on its face, as I said last time. How do you reconstitute a people who live in dozens and dozens of different countries, who don't share a... a all share a language, who have no political power, and who most of all have no land. And say, what? Okay, great idea. <laughs> so that most of the people who hear this reject it. And I think I mentioned at the end of the last class that of the three million Jews running for their lives from the Pale of Settlement between 1880 and 1920, 1% of them wind up 
in Palestine. 99% of them wind up in the United States and a few other countries, South Africa, um, Argentina, yeah. Um, and, uh, and yet, with hindsight, we see the seeds of the Zionist movement. Uh, they called themselves Chovevetzion, uh, lovers of Zion. Um, and they, what they, what they wanted to do was start raising money so that Jewish settlement could be renewed in our ancient land. And the oldest cities and, and, and uh, uh, communities in Israel of modern Jewish settlement are from that period. Zichron Yaakov, Rishon LeZion, um, uh, they, they, they're founded in the 1880s. Of the people who go over there, many of them get very sick from malaria. We'll be talking about this and other diseases. Many stay for a couple of years and say, I can't do this. And they go back to Europe. Like there's a lot of back and forth. And they have no money. No money. They go begging to the Montefiores and the Rothschilds and the Baron de Hirsch's to give them money to buy land from the landowners of the Ottoman Empire there so that they can fund these communities. Uh, and this, is, this period is called the first Aliyah. Yes? So they're not buying it from Palestinians at that point. There were no Palestinians. Right, they buy it from Ottomans. There were no Palestinians. Uh, uh, Palestine was a part of Syria-Palestine, which was an administrative region of the Ottoman Empire. Um, we're talking about a tiny trickle of people purchasing land from whomever they could purchase it from. Of course, the bottom of the barrel are the laborers. They don't own that land. On the other hand, we can talk about this, the, the early Jewish landowners there and farmers are no worse employers than anyone else there. So, you know, it's, 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 it's um, but anyway, we'll be talking about that. Ellen, you want to add something? Because we're just yeah, about out of time. That, that there were, I guess, Arab, Arab villages there, but they didn't own the land. They were tenants of absentee landlords from the Ottoman Empire. And the Jews who got there bought the land from the absentee landlords. landlords. And so those, those villages had no idea that anybody could sell that land out from under them and that Europeans would come in and say, we own it. Uh, Th that's right. Us. But I, I want you to keep in mind that in 1881, 18, the early 1880s, how tiny oh, yeah. an expression this was. The, it wasn't enough to, when we study the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, we will see that it really picks up steam all around the time of the Balfour Declaration in 1917, when, uh, no, 1918, isn't it? 17? 1917, uh, uh, when enough of the Palestinian city dwellers and farmers start to recognize that, wait a minute, what, what's going on here? Yeah, um, we'll be talking about that. But meanwhile, what we'll talk about next class is I have, I have some handouts here, which I didn't think I'd get to today, but uh, I will give you at our next class, which shares some of the writings of the first Zionist thinkers. You can, we'll read some excerpts together and get a feel for what, what their perceptions were. So my goal today, 
was to describe to you, again, the range of Jewish responses to emancipation and how by the end of the 19th century, as the, this new metastasis of anti-Judaism takes form, that is a nationalist and racist anti-Judaism, uh, Jewish thinkers start turning towards solutions they, that were pretty far-fetched that they hadn't thought of before uh, out of necessity as, they start, as some of them started to recognize that in fact they're, they're, they would never be fully accepted into their host uh, nations. Um, and that's where Zionism begins. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you.